0: Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Jonah Goldberg, David French, and the one and only Chris Steierwalt this week. We've got lots to talk about. We're going to start with the verdict in the Chauvin trial. Then we're going to talk about Afghanistan. New competitive congressional districts pop up in a new study and revisiting the history of January 6th. Let's dive in. And before we do, actually, just by way of explanation, we taped some of this podcast on Tuesday afternoon, anticipating the verdict in the Chauvin trial. It didn't come in time. So we taped the part about the Chauvin trial on Wednesday morning. So you're going to hear some stuff about it being Tuesday, April 20th, and you're going to hear some stuff about it being the morning after the Chauvin trial. Bear with us. It's all out of order. All right, guys. The Chauvin verdict came down yesterday. You know, there were some some things happening in advance of the Chauvin trial, including Maxine Waters, the Democratic congresswoman from California, saying that if Chauvin was not convicted of murder, protesters should, quote, stay in the street, get more active, get more confrontational. Joe Biden also weighed in on what the jury should do in advance of actually finding out the verdict. So there was a lot of tension heading into the announcement of the verdict. A lot of buildings, for instance, in D.C., uh, where you know I live relatively close, had boarded up uh, in anticipation of potential unrest, quote-unquote First Amendment activity. And we got the verdict guilty on all counts. David, I'm going to start with you. where does that leave the country?
1: Well, you know, I think overall, overall it is a healing moment with some exceptions um I, I believe justice was done in this verdict uh, I believe that you know especially when you compare and a lot of people were forwarding this around uh, on Twitter last night some of the original the original Minneapolis police statement of what occurred versus what the tape showed us uh having occurred where's a A sharp contrast, and that's a position where activism does come into play to say, wait a minute, this anodyne statement about what happened doesn't match what we saw with our own eyes. Something must be done. But here's where activism, especially from politicians, should not come into play. And that is, especially with Maxine Waters uh, appearing to coming awfully close to threatening violence um, if there is not the verdict that she likes. I think what Joe Biden said was improper as well. Uh, now, what we, ought, what, we, what we have to realize is what they say versus what the jury heard and what the jury knows are two different things. So you can talk about something and it can light Twitter on fire and it can happen without the jury knowing any bit of it at all. And if you just dive in on the evidence here, if you dive in on the evidence I think the evidence supports the verdict. Now, on some of the counts, closer than other counts, and I think uh, if you Andy McCarthy, who'd been critical of the evidence in a couple of the verdicts, our mutual friend, former colleague of Jonah and mine, uh, and Andy McCarthy from National Review, he was more critical of the evidence on on a couple of the on one of the counts in particular. But he said yesterday that the there is a rational basis for supporting this jury verdict on all of the counts. So this is a situation where the evidence supports the verdict. Um, there was proper, I think, activism and pressure that uh, changed the initial sort of anodyne, nothing to see here approach that the Minneapolis police took to this. And there's one thing that I, I want to say in caution because there's an awful lot of people who are now saying, I saw the whole trial, I watched the whole trial, and this was a miscarriage of justice. And you're seeing that particularly on the right. Now, a couple of things about that. One, take with a grain of salt that they saw the whole trial. And then two, the other thing that I would say is if you're watching a trial and you're watching everything that goes to the jury, you're watching everything that goes to the judge, you're then watching all of the commentary about the case from your favorite news sources, that's not the juror experience. And so if somebody is sitting there saying, I know how this should come out because I saw all of these things that is not what the jurors saw. And this is something that I realized when I watched um, the whole uh, um, O.J. Simpson trial back in the day. I realized that there was something very different occurring when only the jury was there versus what was occurring when the jury was out of the room. And I think that's a really important thing when you're hearing people opine with such authority that they know how the jury should have ruled and it should have ruled differently when they didn't experience what the jury experienced. I just I just want to put a pin in that because I think people re- don't really fully understand that. But I think overall this was a verdict that was good for the country. I think there was and it and it was supported by the evidence, it was justice. Now, there were reactions to the verdict that I think were not good for the country. Reactions to the verdict that I think were damaging um and and a lot of those were and kind of the hard right, which went volcanic and ballistic last night.
0: Chris, let's bring this over to you because I think that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about, which is the politics of this movement, this verdict in particular, and where it sits in the movement. uh, It doesn't feel to me like this is a time where the politics are coming closer together. It feels like, Folks on both sides are using this once again as a wedge issue on race, on police, on what part of the country you live in. Um, am I wrong? Did we get any closer together?
2: Well, I think the, the problem here is the amount of surprise that people have expressed about the verdict. Uh, I was in no way surprised that this guy who killed this guy was convicted and is going to prison. Uh, this was, in a, this was in Minneapolis, right? This wasn't in, and I'm sorry, Dothan, Alabama, but this was, this was not like a deep South, whatever. This is a progressive city in a progressive state. Minneapolis does not have a huge African-American population, but like one in five or one in five Minneapolis. It's a diverse city and it's a very democratic city. The idea that this guy who was recorded on tape killing another person Would be convicted, the idea that that's surprising. So I understand why many people view it as surprising, because if you accept the worldview of the 1619 Project, if you accept the worldview that America is a fetid sewer of racism, uh, irredeemed from the days of Jim Crow, if you don't know what Jim Crow was and you think we're living in a new Jim Crow, then you're going to be surprised that a normal thing happened out of a tragic outcome the system working seems like a surprise that's how it goes big whoop the danger comes in when people believe that it was the threat of violence that caused that result to occur right the Al Sharpton uh the Maxine Waters and there are by the way those who on the nationalist right who have uh violence threat envy, as we saw manifested on January 6th, that the only way that you get justice in this terrible, terrible, broken nation of ours is to pose a credible threat of civil unrest and violence. It's so dumb and it's so dangerous. And if the lesson that people take away from this is that the reason this normal outcome occurred is because of the threat of mob violence, that's bad for everybody.
0: Jonah, I go to you for like my big picture history. I don't know, my thoughtful friend. (laughs) I'm wondering if when you watched the verdict, you had the same thought run through your head that ran through mine, which is a, a little taking off of what David said. This never would have happened without a bystander videotaping it on their phone. That technology has only existed for, I mean, 10 years at this point. How many of these happened that we never knew about we never even looked into the police put out the statement nobody really could challenge it and that has been the history at least in part of some of our country up until the last few years and that that's really what explains why these events have become such cultural touchstones in the last you know s- well since 2014 really
2: yeah. I mean, uh, I keep going back to something David talked about on one of the dispatch live events where having, uh, an African-American daughter exposed him to a different understanding of race relations in America. And it was just basic mathematical thing which David will correct me if I get it wrong, which was that if you're not a ra- if you're not a racist white person, You probably don't know a lot of racist white people. You might have known them when you were younger, but you don't want to hang around racists anymore. So almost 100% of your bubble is non-racist. So, But in reality, let's say 90% of America, just for the sake of abstraction, is 90% of white Americans aren't racist. That means if you're a normal African-American person or a person who's the parent of an African-American person, it's conceivable that, say, 1 in 10 of your interactions have a racist component to them. That can feel the way your brain works like an enormous number of racist interactions. Now, the 9 in 10 thing, who knows what the real number is? My suspicion is, in many ways, it's a lot smaller than that. But it illustrates part of the problem with the cop stuff. If you have, if, 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 if your few interactions with the cops, are if you only have 10 interactions with the cops in your life, and one out of 10 of them are racist, you're going to have a very different view of what cops are about in this country, and justifiably so. And so while I am skeptical that the idea that there are as many Chauvin-type cases pre-body cams than like what Al Sharpton might claim or whatever, I think just as a matter of honesty and logic, you have to concede we missed a lot of stuff because it wasn't visible to us, you know you can only it's like the drunk looking for his car keys where the light under the street light because that's where the light is good. if you can't see it, you don't think it exists in a lot of cases, and I think that's entirely true. I do want to flip it around a little bit because while I agree with David, a lot of the right wing reaction makes me ashamed and embarrassed and infuriated and um, disgusted and I, and we can I can dunk on that all day and and maybe I will later today. A lot of the left-wing reaction or a lot of the the MSNBC reaction has been very bad, too. You know, where, and and forget the pundits for a second, Keith Ellison coming out and saying, this is not justice. You know, this is just accountability, and it's a start, but this is not real justice. He's the attorney general of Minnesota. They just won on every single charge in a murder trial against a cop, and the message he's sending out is, don't be satisfied with this. I've listened to a bunch of people on NPR. I listened to the, f- the first pr- pundit to talk on MSNBC yesterday when the news came out was this guy, Jason Johnson, who I, I generally like, and I think he's a smart guy and all that kind of stuff. His first reaction was anger, bitterness, and dissatisfaction that this that we're even in this situation, which I get, and refuse, but refuse to concede that there should be any joy, maybe the wrong word, but sense of justice. In this, I just think sends a signal that there are a lot of people out there, just as the right. You could some there's some people we don't have to name them, but there's some people on Twitter, there's some people on 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 cable news on the right who are almost you can almost you can almost see the little spittle coming out of their mouths as, as they salivate for some sort of race war, and you get the sense that there are people on the left who kind of feel the same way. It may be a little you know it's a different flavor but it's 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 kind of the same sentiment and i think that is just profoundly depressing to me and dangerous and so you know there was this shooting in there was this shooting in in ohio in columbus and immediately a bunch of people were trying to put this into see this changed nothing this you know another black person was shot now we don't know everything but from the camera footage that we've gotten from this and from the facts that as we know them which could change um this person sounds like they deserve to be shot because they were about to stab somebody else. Now, that may not be true, but regardless of whether it's true or not, it is certainly different than putting your neck on the back of a man who's handcuffed and who's unconscious for the last four minutes of his life. And the, 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 the race for people to put everything into these literally literally black and white categories of good versus bad, Um, black versus white is so pernicious and so dangerous. And I listened to Eddie Glau Jr. this morning on MSNBC talking about how great this is, because at least he was excited and happy about this thing. But he was talking about how we're finally leaving the era of Reaganism, which was all about (laughs) law and order and all of this kind of stuff. And this is going to be a better era. No, it may not be. It may be an era. You know, uh, uh, my friend Ian Murray had a piece of the dispatch this week we may be moving out of the old era of ideological combat into the era of identity combat. And that's far more ugly and dangerous. And so I worry about all this. I'm delighted by the ruling. I, 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 I'm i sort of where McCarthy is. I think reasonable people can argue about murder too. But the sanctimony of people who are like, he was definitely given Lee a manslaughter, but it's outrageous that he got murdered too. That's a perfectly legitimate thing to debate about. And like, maybe he was overcharged and all that kind of stuff. But let's not turn a guy who even his defenders concede was guilty of manslaughter into some sort of glorious hero for Whitey. I mean, it's just it's so infuriating to me.
0: All right. I want to leave the topic there, but we will be interviewing former U.S. attorney Zach Terilliger on Friday to talk about what it's like as the prosecutor in some of these cases. All right, Jonah, it's time we talked about Afghanistan.
2: Yeah, we, um, uh, you were too generous once again, Guess you were a kind and, and soft hearted person. Uh, we saved Afghanistan to now because we wanted to save it for Steve and then Steve's a no show again. So I see no reason why we should take it on the chin rather than put the blame where it belongs because <laughs> this is a long overdue topic. Um, I'm. I'm generally fascinated by this. I, I I don't think that there's an American out there whose opinion anyone should respect, who isn't exhausted by the Afghan conflict, and who wouldn't like to see us get out of there on you know some terms. Uh, but what is remarkable to me, and I'll I'll throw this to you guys in this way, is that the debate about doing this has been so stifled and so muted. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that there's a big, big chunk of the Trump, right, which is basically the right these days that doesn't want to have this fight because they were, they wanted to get out too. the left is wanting to get out for even longer. And, um, and no one wants to get called a dirty neocon imperialist. And so the debate has been incredibly muffled, even though every expert that you see on TV every expert who writes about this stuff credibly without a partisan ax to grind says that odds are this is going to lead to something like Saigon all over again with Kabul falling and the Taliban resurgent and lots of bad things happening, particularly to women. And what is the re- most, one of the more, two most remarkable things about it are one is when the white house talks about how this can't be conditions based. Basically no one is willing to sort of, call BS on that and say, what you're really saying is this is unconditional withdrawal because that's what non condition based withdrawal means is unconditional withdrawal. And second, I think it is just an abject scandal that they decided to make the deadline for this September 11. I think this is one of the dumbest public relations moves ever. This is sort of classic Biden thing where like remember after 9-11, he reportedly said, you know what we should do? We should send $300 million to, to Iran. You know, that'll, that'll assure them that that we're not mad at them or something. I mean, it was like one of these crazy ideas that staffers just said, okay, Senator, and moved on. And the fact that this has gotten so little pushback, even though experts from both sides almost all guarantee that this is going to end badly, um, and no one seems to really care. And I just, that it's a very strange thing in my lifetime to see something so momentous happen with such little, so few, so few bangs and so many whimpers.
1: Um, uh,
2: David, am I wrong about this?
1: No, I I don't, I don't think you're wrong. And I especially don't think you're wrong given a lot of the recent history. So I'm kind of getting this deja vu feeling because, uh, in the, during Obama's first term, Obama elected to pull out of Iraq there, was, there were an awful lot of people who said, "Hey, look, if we pull all the way out of Iraq, the following things will occur. Um, the government will destabilize, jihadists will rise, uh, and we could face a return of uh, really, and the, the return of an, a, a strong and powerful jihadist presence into the heart of the Middle East." And that is exactly what happened. I mean, that's, that's just exactly what happened, And sure enough. Just a few years later, the United States is back. It's back in Iraq. It extends its reach into Syria. Uh, American troops, thankfully without as many casualties as during the first Iraq war, were engaged in some of the most intense urban combat the world has seen in a generation in in cities like Mosul and Raqqa. And in hindsight, that withdrawal from Iraq was an epic mistake that cost thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. And what made it all the more tragic is we didn't have to have many troops there in Iraq to prevent this from happening. So here we fast forward to Afghanistan. We don't have very many troops in Afghanistan right now. They are more than sufficient uh, to keep the government in power. They are more than sufficient to uh, to keep Al Qaeda from creating safe havens. And now we're pulling up stakes again, again, and look this is both a this is this is an issue that is both vitally important for afghans themselves our allies the people who've depended on us and what will happen to the women in afghanistan what will happen to our allies the possibility of a of a saigon type fall of kabul that's very real and also we know that afghan soil has been used before to plan a horrific attack on america so it's it's not like we can say, well, American national security has nothing to do with what happens in Afghanistan. And look, I get it. I get it. I totally get it. This has been a long, long, long time. But two things. One, it has been successful at stopping Al Qaeda from having safe havens and hitting us again really hard. It has been successful on its core its core mission of national self-defense. And number two, the obligation of national self-defense is perpetual. It doesn't end when we're tired of defending ourselves. It doesn't end when defending ourselves takes a long time. It's a permanent obligation of the United States government is to defend the country from its enemies. And so long as the enemies seek to do us harm, we need to defend ourselves.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, no one, according to Biden's logic, since no one can explain to him what the conditions would look like for withdrawal, we have to withdraw unconditionally. And, you know, we don't talk that way about crime. We don't talk that way about forest fires. We don't talk that way about all sorts of things because they're perpetual problems, right? I know, Sarah, you are of the school that I'll, I'll paraphrase it unfairly, foreign policy doesn't matter, um, by which you qualified to say in politics. Um, yes,
0: that's an important but I'm qualification, sure, But I'm also sure you
2: had something of an asterisk when it came to things like war and terrorist attacks. So anyway... Uh, what are the politics of this? Are they is it is this just all win for Biden? Is there what's how do you score it?
0: So here's how I think about it, which is uh, the the reason that foreign policy it's really tough for it to matter in politics is because it doesn't last long enough. Pulling out of Afghanistan and then something bad happens to the folks who are left behind it fades from our news. It No one remembers it. But here's the alternative, which is the rise of ISIS, for instance, in the Middle East and what happened with that. Who gets blamed for that is the question. And if it's far enough after the fact, um, sometimes not the person who might actually be to blame gets blamed for it. It's more just like, who's going to solve the problem now? And you know, to some extent, Maybe that's the healthier way that politics should work. It should be forward-facing. Well, we've got the problem now. It doesn't really matter who's to blame. I think that what you would say, Jonah, to that is, sure, but we still have to learn from what went wrong and maybe not elect people who think that that was still the right move if we now see the results of it. I think the biggest problem on the politics of now with the Afghanistan conversation is the lack of what's the alternative. I mean, David's what's the alternative that I just heard is uh, you stay there until there's no longer a problem. That's not a viable alternative after 20 years. It's just not.
2: In Korea, we've been there for 70, right? Germany, Turkey,
0: <laughs> Japan. <laughs> we have people lots of places. Uh, we don't have as many KIAs in those places.
2: No, that's right. Oh,
1: that's true. That's totally fair. But, well, that... but. To be clear, that the casualty rate in Afghanistan has dropped dramatically, dramatically. Yeah, that, and how, what's inter- the
0: casualty rate in Korea last year, David?
1: Same as Afghanistan. Is it really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, Wait. Now, there might have been some soldiers who died of accidents in Afghanistan, but I believe the last KIAs in Afghanistan were more than a year ago. Now, we can oh, live oh. fact-chat that.
0: We could so, live back. But there, are, Kay, Kay there lives are people on who it. die
1: in in training in training accidents. Sure. In Korea.
0: No, I yeah. meant actually killed. I thought there was an ambush in the last year in Afghanistan.
1: Chris, you want to settle all this for us?
2: <laughs> yeah, let me just square this all up for you. It's easily resolved. <laughs> um, so you can attribute Gerald Ford's uh, rebound uh, in '76 and his performance in part to national, some of it was national shame at what had happened in 1975. Uh, Democrats certainly paid a price for what was seen as Bill Bill Clinton and the Clinton administration's unserious approach to national security in the wake of uh, the embassy bombings and the World Trade Center bombings. Uh, I certainly think you can make an argument that Donald Trump uh, was hugely advantaged by Barack Obama's mishandling just even in the politics and the messaging, uh, on the rise of ISIS. We all remember the day he was on Martha's Vineyard and under pressure came to the microphones to issue a statement about the killing of the American hostage and then went and played golf. That kind of stuff sticks. Uh, and the Biden doesn't believe that he is that kind of Democrat, right? He believes that he is a tough guy, right? He believes that he is a tough Democrat, not a Uh, that he's not going to get zinged with this stuff. What it comes down to is, are there consequences? Uh, Sadly, uh, it is probably true that uh, if Kabul Kabul falls or maybe the uh, people in Kabul uh, say that they, for one, welcome their new insect overlords, however that goes down, maybe there won't be a consequence in the United States. But I got to tell you, This sets Biden up for real peril politically because if things get bad, if there is a terror attack, if there is something, uh, Republicans will immediately forget that this was Donald Trump's idea in the first place and hammer Biden for it and he'll pay a price.
0: So let's do the fact check. Uh, Four members of the US military were killed last year in Afghanistan. Army Staff Sergeant Ian McLaughlin died when his vehicle was hit by a roadside bomb in southern Kandahar. He was killed alongside Army Private First Class Miguel Villalón. And Paul, uh, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Paul Voss was killed when the bombardier he was piloting crashed. Uh, and he was killed alongside Air Force Captain Ryan Fanoff. Uh, again, in that plane crash. You know, those are guys they left behind families, children. That's right. pretty it's different 14, than Japan or Korea.
1: It's been fourteen months since the last hostile fire casualty.
2: Okay. And uh, just one last one last point on this. The whole I get the whole idea of pivoting to you know the Bi- Biden White House says we're going to pivot to. Uh, geostrategic competition with, you know, geostrategic competitors, I- i.e. China and maybe one level down Russia. Having a base in that neighborhood is not a terrible thing if that's your new strategy, you know, is to deal with the the stuff on the ground, particularly since uh, China and India are actually like fighting over b- border right now, sometimes in hand-to-hand combat in the mountains. Um, just seems like, It just seems like this is a, we're all tired of it. Even Colin Powell said something remarkably dumb about this. And since everybody started with it, you get a freebie to to do what you want to do on this politically, is how I feel about it.
0: Well, David made the point that there there haven't been any uh, casualties since we signed the uh, deal with the Taliban in February, late February of last year, which you guys poo-pooed at the time. So, which is it, David? We shouldn't have signed the peace deal and we should have more guys killed there? Or the peace deal was pointless? I mean, we have these four guys. You're right that they were all killed before the peace deal, but you guys were against the peace deal.
1: It hasn't been peace.
0: I know, but you just <laughs> use that as, like, why No, 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 no. So like, what I'm saying is there's a, there. there's
1: a... There's a difference between... So, the bottom line is, what we have is a very small footprint that is largely not engaged in direct combat, but is still very important for preserving the gains that we have made. And so that is that's the reality right now. And what you're doing is you're saying we're going to pull out that f- footprint and that is not engaging in direct combat to nearly the scale that we used to. Um, and and you know what I what the point that I was trying to make is that we have a stabilizing effect. In 2011, when we pulled out from Iraq, I don't believe we were having combat casualties at that time either. And so, but what ends up happening is when you pull out these stabilizing forces, you destabilize. And the point that I was trying to make is, is not that there isn't risk. It's just that I think that people have a f- sense of what our forces are doing and how many casualties we're taking that is not... uh. That's not up to date. That is uh, resting on previous year's experience, and we have had a change of mission. But I don't think that there's any chance that the Taliban could take Kabul with this current footprint that we have. You let, yank out the footprint, they can take Kabul. I think that's the basic reality of it. In the same way, if you lifted when we lifted out the footprint that we had in Iraq, they were able to take Mosul, they were able to take Fallujah, they were able to take a big chunk of that country and Baghdad was under threat Kurdistan was under threat until we got back involved.
0: All right, we're going to leave this topic. We're going to come back to domestic policy. Chris, talk to us about the voter index.
2: Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh so the Cook Political Report uh every after every Peace be upon it, very much (laughs) so, with such a fantastic crew. uh, And it's Dave Wasserman who heads up this effort for him or for them. uh, And every after every presidential election or after every redistricting, they reweight all of the four hundred and thirty five House districts uh, in terms of the average of their previous two presidential votes compared to the nation as a whole. So you've seen when something is an R a district is R plus eight or a D plus 21, what that means is that it's that much more Republican or that much more Democrat democratic than the nation as a whole. And they just came out with their new ones, and these are very interesting. Because this is two Trump elections, the previous ones were not that useful to us because it was Romney and Trump, so it didn't catch all of the stuff. Joni, you had Dan Crenshaw on the Remnant recently. His district is is one of the districts that moved the most. It went from being an R plus eleven to an R plus four because it had two knocks of Trump in it. That's a, a very affluent, educated Houston suburb, uh, and that. So this we care about this because it helps us. Pick races. It helps us look at which seats are in jeopardy and which seats are safe. But what happened this time for the first time since they started doing this in 1997, and I wrote about this for Sarah today in her newsletter, which is that for the first time since 1997, the number of competitive districts that are R plus five to D plus five, the number actually increased for the first time after going down and hugely down it went from being 36% or so 30 mid 30s of seats in congress were competitive to at its lowest point which was in 2017 it hit it hit the lowest point and then stayed there went down to 72 so we went from our 72 seats or 16% so we reduced by more than half the number of competitive districts in the united states First, we have to remember, this is not about redistricting, or at least not substantially about redistricting. This is about the great sorting that took place in the United States over the last 20 years. He uses West Virginia's second, uh, Wasserman used West Virginia's second congressional district as an example. This is a district that goes from the Ohio River to the D.C. suburbs, hasn't been redrawn in all this time, but it's moved 20 points to the right in that time. People have sorted themselves out and we all know there are not any liberal Republicans or conservative Democrats to speak of anymore, at least not in any significant number. So this is a result of sorting that this is how it goes. And then we have a idiotic primary system that means that you're doubly incentivized to be a bad member of Congress, right? You don't have to worry about the general election, number one. And then number two, you do have to worry about the primary election. And I think it was, was it John Kyle who, when somebody asked him, whether a primary challenger could get to the right of him and he said if they can get to the right of me god help them and <laughs> so that that kind of thinking came in hard now look it's only i think 6 or 8 more seats that are competitive this time and maybe it's just a trump phenomenon maybe it maybe this is a mirage that will evaporate next time around because the republicans probably won't nominate donald trump again or they won't it, i think it's unlikely that they will Whatever anybody says right now, I think it's unlikely that they will repeat the mistake that they made. But so they could go back and those districts like Crenshaw's could swing back to strong Republican. But I was just very encouraged for a minute To see more competitive districts, because if you want to save Congress from itself, they have to have the right fears and losing in general elections is the correct fear for members of Congress to have. If you want to know why guys like Paul Ryan were good in Congress, because they come from swing districts and the solutions that they have have to be palatable. That's a district that Obama carried the first time Paul Ryan's district was. So you have to have solutions and answers and rationales that uh, can work with uh, general election voters. So two cheers.
0: I think there's two things that are worth underlining in that. Um, let's hold the gerrymandering constant, which is hard to do because like while gerrymandering does not account for all of this, it certainly accounts for some of it. Uh,
2: he said, I think, I think he said, what did he say?
0: 15%. Great. So, but regardless, let's hold it totally constant. Pretend there's no gerrymandering. Um, the The effects we're seeing that are not attributable to gerrymandering are basically People gerrymandering themselves, which is fascinating. I mean, when you think of the great sort in those terms and that you actually have two forces working at once, you do have gerrymandering, but you also have people moving gerrymandering themselves. Um, No wonder it's like a plane flying in the jet stream. It's going twice as fast or however you want to think about that.
2: Uh, Well, but the people didn't this isn't wouldn't about people moving into districts, right? This is about the people to use the second congressional district as the example. It wasn't about migration. It was about the people, and even their attitudes didn't change. They just, their party registration changed.
0: Yeah, fair. I mean, I still sort of think of that the same way um, because generally it's not that the people themselves are changing their minds. Some are, but it's also that they're, you know, some folks are dying off, some folks are becoming older, like they're moving into different voter brackets, if you will, the same way that most people sort of change their politics over their lifetime. The old joke, you know, if you're not a liberal Democrat when you're 18, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative Republican when you're 45, you have no brain or whatever it is. Um, I find that part fascinating. I also think that this could be a really good silver lining. It's not even a lining. It's like a whole bolded outline of the two parties reshuffling themselves. As we have that realignment and the Republican Party shifts dramatically in terms of what it stands for, and the Democrats have to sort of reach that equilibrium to maximize their vote as well, uh, maybe we'll get some more competitive congressional districts out of it. Not the worst thing in the world. Uh, So my prediction would be that you will see a continued trend of a trickling of a few more competitive districts if the parties continue to realign. Jonah, what do you think?
2: So I like your nature is healing take on this. Um, <laughs> and um, I would like it to be true. I, I honestly, I don't know. I mean, I, I think both in the sweep and here, uh, Chris was strategically wise in not. That sounds, sounds, sounds like a, a weasel wording. Strategically wise is Weasley. I'll stand by that. Uh, <laughs> not to overinterpret this data because it's you need a trend line, right? And so, like right. this could be a blip, or this could be the beginning of something. This beautiful silver cloud that Sarah wants to see on the horizon. Um, and I just, I, I honestly, I, I honestly don't know. I think there's just too much stuff. There are too many caveats and questions that I would have to, to turn it into a prediction off into the future too far, but. You know, this raises this is something I've been fascinated with for a really long time, and I I keep meaning to like do a grown up thing and like do some deeper research on this because I have this problem with the way intellectual historians talk about various demographic political demographics in America, and they make it sound like there's this group of people who have a set of ideas and they're born into this world, Preach. the way you're born in with like light skin or dark skin or you know they make it sound like it's like identity politics and ad- a form of Im- immutable identity to be a evangelical or to be a um you know part of the paranoid right or or a socialist or all these kinds of things and then when you actually meet actual human beings out in the world it turns out that a lot of them have changed their minds about all sorts of things over the course of their life and that people aren't necessarily born into these hard categories and so one of the things that this raises for me that I think is really interesting is this you know this the the gerrymandering of the heart thing. Most of these districts are the same people, right? They haven't moved to this district in West Virginia because they decided they want to be Republican, so they left where they lived, probably, for the most part. And, And what is interesting to me is that how the incentive structure and the feedback loop you get from media and all of these things has actually turned a lot of people who were once moderate Republicans into kind of rabid Republicans and turned lots of people who were once moderate Democrats into you know seize the means of production democrats and <laughs> um and that process is both more disturbing um but also more human and it'd be interesting to see if if this is evidence that maybe that's changing that would be that would be really good and i think the trump effect feeds into that because there are a lot of people not a majority alas but there are a lot of republicans who are just like look yeah i agree with them on policy stuff but this aesthetically morally ethically whatever this ain't my bag and I don't want to be any part of it. And that might make them weaker Republicans, but it also might make it that the center is the driving incentive structure for elections again, which I think would lead to a healthier polity.
0: David.
1: (sighs) Not much to say on this that you guys didn't say. Um, I guess where I'm interested, and the thing that I'm interested in in looking at is, Suburbs, the cities. It seems to me are just growing more intensely progressive. Rural America is becoming sort of more intensely populist. And w- what are the suburbs doing? Is are these in, are these competitive districts becoming? Are, are they coming disproportionately from sub- suburban America? Um, that yes. that's yeah, well. That's what's interesting to me. That's what's interesting to me, and that is. Is this in, along the Sarah realignment thesis, that seems to be consistent that you have this geographic section of America that is in a process of realignment, um, realigning away from Republicans. And I, I just don't know if that is a, a, a lingering Trump effect or if that's a real thing, uh, you know living in the suburbs i've moved from sort of core trump area to maybe one of the trumpiest suburbs in america but it's still temperamentally quite different from rural trump it's very different it's it's you can tell that the 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 focus is much more on stability the focus is much more on chilling out <laughs> than it is on fight 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 and I, I, you know, part of me wonders if you know one of the keys to the hearts of the suburbs over time is going to be who's going to offer more stability. Who's going to uh, to to going to be the force that's going to be the one that is going to be least disruptive, least likely one to want to burn it all down. Um, Because the fact of the matter is, if you're going to take a part of America where things seem to be going pretty well. It's in the suburban slice of American life, and so that to me is going to be very interesting to see where we move. Uh, and is this move away from the GOP permanent, semi-permanent, or is it just a, a a knock-on Trump effect? Well, it'll just depend. It'll depend on what they do, right? I
2: think what we have to remember in this whole discussion, no matter what, is events, right? Uh, Dan Cranshaw's district didn't go from twenty-seven R to four R just because the people there had new and different feelings. Events intervened (laughs) to make it impossible for them to vote for Donald Trump. Similarly, in Lucy McBath's district in the North, North Atlanta suburbs, different things made it possible for Democrats to win there. And the... The thing we have to remember is, and I think this applies to the Afghanistan conversation. It it applies to all of it. It depends on how it goes, right? If Joe Biden keeps rolling with a 60% job approval rating and he won't, but if he did and things were going gangbusters in the country and everybody felt good, yeah, the shift would be permanent. On the other hand, I just read uh, today. Biden is pledging to cut U.S. emissions by 50 percent by 2030. Uh, that's a great way to lose suburban. That's a fantastic way to lose <laughs> right. suburban seats. Ask Barack Obama, uh, ask Nancy Pelosi how cap and trade did for them in 2010. So this will depend on how people do. And it'll also depend on whether or not Republicans can stop getting high on their own supply for five minutes.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that I I wonder about, and both Chris and Sarah, all all three of you how much are is conservative media creating an environment of doom, panic and gloom that is walling off culturally uh, a lot of you know people on the right from sort of the not just the left but those who are not sort of deeply engaged in politics it, it it's striking to me how much even though the pandemic is easing even though the economy is roaring back it is striking to me how much the America in crisis narrative is just got a vice grip on on a big part of the right right now. And it seems to me, as a political amateur, that could be deeply alienating from a lot of the rest of the country.
2: Works on the left too. Uh, (laughs) But part of the reason that Democrats had a disappointing year in the House in 2020 was because of an echo chamber, mostly in mainstream press, uh, where defund the police and all of that flummery was uh, was presented as a mainstream opinion when even among democrats you know i wrote about a similar thing with immigration last week 40% of texas democrats want a us mexico border wall so it's like you know we got we have to the 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 echo the, they're both sides get high on their own supply they just have different dealers
0: so chris i think <laughs> i have an interesting question for us to perhaps deal with in the sweep which is back when you and I kind of started in this biz, uh, donors were at sort of the, um, you know, if you want to think of it like a spectrum, donors were sort of the closest into the center of the spectrum. And so if you wanted big donor money, you know, people who maxed out on those federal dollars, you were saying things in the center. And then when you talked at a town hall, you were moving to your base, one direction or the other, both parties. But, and I, I did put this in the sweep, When you're looking at the FEC numbers for Q1 this time and who's got cash on hand, I mean, the world has changed so much in digital online fundraising. You no longer even want really those maxed out checks because then you've got to sit around at a dinner. That's three hours of your candidate's time, sometimes more, uh, when in fact your candidate doesn't have to spend any time raising money if you just do it online. The Q1, Top fundraisers were Ted Cruz, 3.6 million, Josh Hawley, 3 million, Rand Paul, 1.9, Marco Rubio, 1.6, uh, cash on hand mostly follows that as well. So what's interesting is we're talking about the districts potentially getting more competitive, but at the same time, the donors are going to be pushing these candidates more to the edges. Whereas that used to be something that would push them closer to the center.
2: Well, first, don't lump yourself in with me. I have been doing this since approximately since the Earth cooled. Uh, I am <laughs> I am I am old. Uh, it, when I when I started, they were still doing it by Pony Express. Uh, the <laughs> The, the big change. Yes. Uh, the rage fueled limbic, uh, $5 donation, uh, which is the digitization of the Newt Gingrich. If you don't, uh, buy generic cat food, so you can send me $15 by mail. I can't stop the slaughter of the unborn. And you're like, but you won't do that no matter how much money, uh, (laughs) Nellie of Telequa, Oklahoma sends you. Um, so that of course, that in that it creates an incentive for the kind of conduct that you see from Hawley that creates a kind of uh, incentive for Cruz and others. But don't leave out the big piece here, which is because of the double whammy of Citizens United uh, coming on the heels of the awful, awful, awful McCain-Feingold uh, Campaign Finance Reform Act, the, the, the terrible gutting of America's parties. As a consequence of this, unaccountable super PACs make the difference. Right. So big do- these politicians don't have to go suck up to big donors anymore because big donors wait for the end. And then American Crossroads or whomever will hover over like the spaceships in V and drop a quadrillion dollars on the preferred target.
0: Yep. All right. We got to cover that in the sweep.
1: Yeah, this is this is something that I have been following for a while, and it it has really sort of come to the fore in my mind after the news came that Officer uh, Brian Sicknick, the 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 medical examiner's report revealed that he did not die as a result of injury sustained while on duty. Uh, there was a for a while there was a, a idea that he had been hit in the head with a fire extinguisher that turned out to be a different police officer than possibly that he had died as a result of being bear sprayed. Two people have been charged for spraying him with bear spray or tear gas type uh, chemical irritant. That is, allegedly is not the cause of his death. He apparently died of natural causes shortly after the riot, very soon after the riot. Now this contradicts this contradicts early reporting from the police itself um, that there was a January 7th press release from United States Capitol Police, that says that Brian D. Sicknick passed away due to injuries sustained while on duty. Um, this has been turned into a media scandal by a lot of people on the right, and it has been turned into a way to sort of engage in a revision revisionist history about January 6 itself. So, for example, this is kind of a typical tweet Comes from Bamari from the New York Post, with Sicknick confirmed to have died of natural causes. The blue checks attempt to reframe to frame the event as a sort of domestic 9/11, including oh, by calling geez. it "one six unravels." It was a dumb, impotent riot, and that's that. Um, this is something that I have been seeing quite a bit uh, on the right, which is essentially that was just kind of a, I mean. Uh, Bunch of bunch of rubes and you know a bunch of people a bunch of thugs who just uh, kind of an impotent gesture, um, not nearly as big a deal, uh, you know. And that a lot of people need to walk back a lot of their drama about one six. And I'm just not having it, y'all. I'm <laughs> just not having it. We watched it with our own eyes. They stormed the Capitol building violently. We saw in real time police officers being beaten. Subsequent video footage showed horrible things occurring to cops and to police officers, including people being crushed, people being beaten with flagpoles, being hit with fire extinguishers, being sprayed with tear gas in an effort to storm the U.S. Capitol capital to stop a constitutional process in its tracks to try to reinstall Donald Trump as president. That's a historic, a terrible historic event. In the history of the United States of America, and yes, if some people ran with that Capitol Hill statement um, and went too far with that initial Capitol Police statement, sure, report what you know. Report this update. Absolutely, report this update. If people went too far, issue corrections. Absolutely, but this is not a reason to revise our understanding of the core of what happened on January sixth. Um, Jonah, your thoughts. <laughs> So, um, I,
2: on the big picture, agree with you entirely. Um, I think like, uh, and the problem is you can get really misled by a lot of the Twitter stuff on this where, you know, I mean, the number of people saying that this was, this just shows, you know, like the green, well, Glenn Greenwald who's basically a human Twitter account. You know, he's, he was saying on <laughs> Tucker, um, that this proves the complicity of like, you know, the, 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 the the media will lie and misinform and disin, you know, use disinformation and yada, yada, yada. And this just shows that this whole narrative was contrived. And, and the problem with that is if the media and the deep state were capable of going this far with the sick Nick was murdered story, they would have taken care of the Gacy medical examiner's report to make sure that it fit the narrative. Right. I mean, there's this, there is a, The conspiracy mongering of the people claiming that this was a conspiracy is pretty bad. And it seems to me a far more obvious explanation is that this is essentially the equivalent of fog of war. Stuff got reported, got carried, got taken as true, and blah, blah, blah. The only place where I will push back is I do think it is kind of a media fiasco from the media that claims to say, you know, the old Chicago rule of, you know, if your mom says she loves you, check it out. uh, That. No one just sort of asks some simple questions to find this out sooner. That's bad. And the, the sort of momentum to sort of carry this this far is bad. Um, but there's also this other strange thing, which is related to the... And, I, and look, I agree with you. Like, the Sicknic story could never have happened. What happened on January 6th was terrible and fundamentally evil. And, 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 and you can talk all you want about how the mall protests were peaceful. And then, but you can't leave out the fact that a big chunk of the mall, pro- the peaceful protest, then splintered off and stormed the Capitol and beat cops up and, you know, cost the cop an eye. And I mean, the, the guys who lost fingers and eyes, is that just part of the misinformation campaign? Um, but NBC has this really interesting new report out that says that in all of the criminal cases that the FBI, the DOJ is pursuing against people, against the people who stormed the Capitol. They're not using any evidence that this was planned or premeditated in any way. And NBC kind of runs through how this was in fact, you know, there was an enormous amount of stuff, maps, you know, uh, uh, you know, strategy memos that would go out, you know, with the caveat that this was a hypothetical question of how to storm the Capitol on January 6. Um, lots of like pre-event, you know, pre-January 6th stuff about, um, we're going to give the politicians a choice, you know, confirm Donald Trump president or, you know, go to the gulag or the the gallows or whatever. And it's interesting to me that that and I don't want to get conspiratorial myself, but I just think it's very interesting to me that none of that evidence has been brought in in the criminal prosecutions. Uh at least according to NBC, they may be wrong about that, but uh you know, they're they're touting this as a pretty big story and it does feel like the need for a 9-11 type commission to just get the historical record right on this is really, really, really important. And I have zero faith in Nancy Pelosi or in Republicans or basically anybody who could get appointed to it to do it in good faith. And so I'm I'm kind of in this position of I want to have a fact-finding, but
1: I don't trust any of the fact finders.
0: Gotta be Chris next.
1: Sarah. No. Oh, do you want to do Chris next? Okay. Yeah. Chris, I want to ask you. So here you have a report from the Capitol Police, and I'm looking at it, the January 7th press release. Officer Brian Sicknick passed away due to injuries sustained while on duty. Um, two two questions for you. One, you know, I want to hear your thoughts on the meta issue that Jonah talked about, about sort of the magnitude of January 6th and a and a fact-finding commission. But also, what's your... What is a reporter's responsibility when they receive a report like this from a government agency that that, it, that appears to be definitive, uh, passed away due to injuries, but is not supported by underlying evidence? Um, what's, a, what's your view of a reporter's responsibilities in that circumstance? Uh,
2: if the cops tell you or somebody says that this is how this person died, Uh, unless there was reason to doubt it, unless it was not the case, you would go with it. The person is dead. Uh, the people in power. Now you attribute, you say, police say, you don't say, I say, you say, police say that you died as a result of this. I have to admit, um, I find the idea of truth squatting. Well, John Steinbeck's best book, uh, is the winner of our discontent. And in it, it tells the parable about the Campbellites, who were the forerunners of the Church of Christ, who had foretold uh, the end of the the world. And so they sold off all of their things uh, and went out into the meadow to wait for the rapture. And then ain't no rapture came. And they had to go back to town uh, and sheepishly ask for their bedsteads back and their oxen back. Uh, so that they could go on with life, so I think for a lot of Republicans, that's what January sixth and and stop the steal and all of this stuff was. It's good that they feel ashamed. I understand they don't want to talk about how ashamed they are, and that they're eager to talk about something else. I'm certainly willing to let them talk about something else. That's fine. They want to go talk about something else. We all know what it was, right? The president told pernicious lies. Uh, his supporters told pernicious lies. And, uh, for more, for six weeks, well, for months before the election, uh, and created the circumstances under which this horrible thing happened. And as long as everybody knows that's what it is, then I don't really care. Uh, the people in the world who are going to go through, like you mentioned, what's his name from the New York post, uh, or Glenn Greenwald or whomever, uh, you know, people are going to click and they're going to go on Twitter and say things to try to excite other people and take positions that they will draw. Clickbait from and all that stuff, and I could care less. That's just the dumbest kind. Uh, who has who has the time to do it? Uh, <laughs> so so I I don't care about that part. But I agree with you that there is a, a serious threat from that wing, from the nationalist wing of the Republican Party, to aggressively minimize this, ignoring it. I'm okay with minimizing it. I'm not right,
0: Sarah. I found it very frustrating because it provides so much fuel to both sides in this fight. One says, see, you can't trust official sources. And the other one says, look, they were pretty close to right. And both have a point. Um, You know, he died from multiple strokes after what had to be probably the most stressful day of his career to that point. To say that that wasn't related—that somehow he just died of natural causes—okay, uh, kinda. Like, let's not <laughs> let's not miss what probably triggered the stroke here. Um, but at the same time, the statement that was put out immediately after and the narrative that everyone agreed to isn't quite right. And I just find it very frustrating. This is going to continue to happen. Um. And unlike these other times where you can blame Twitter, you can blame reporters who were rushing to get the story right, you can blame all sorts of sort of these external factors that are just you know part of our world in 2021 and we long for the good old days of whenever Chris was born in the 18th century. Uh, that, that wouldn't have fixed this, actually. That's not what caused this. And so there's no solution. There's no hope. And I'm just <laughs> frustrated. <laughs> you
1: know there there's part of this there is a degree here of in fog of war situations there is a degree of grace that is necessary um, when you're talking about i do think it is entirely appropriate as chris said if a government agency has said this is what occurred it's entirely appropriate to say and to report the government agency has said this is what occurred <laughs> that's not a media scandal
0: yeah but at David, the same time we kind of knew something but I'm wasn't not de- quite right but I'm quick.
1: not done yet. I'm not done yet. No, I know. Um, and we followed, you know, we followed this story at the dispatch. You also have an obligation that if what the government agency says appears not to be quite right, to to dig into it. But the initial reporting of this is what they say and attributing to them, that is that is appropriate for a media outlet the same time, you want to stay on it as soon as something doesn't smell quite right. And then another thing is i'm I've been in a position of generating reports of uh, of events in combat within minutes to hours after combat has ceased. And it is hard. <laughs> it is hard to do. It really is. And sometimes it takes a while to sort things out. So what ends up happening is that we're, we're uh, to go to your sort of weariness and cynicism, Sarah, we, number one, yes, there are people who don't do their job particularly well. Number two, sometimes these jobs are really hard to do and to get everything right on a prompt basis. Um, and we have no grace for any sort of error that comes from an opposing side. We're always going to ascribe a maximum amount of malice to it and be a maximum amount of forgiving to people on our own side. And it it strikes me that we have a combination of some incompetence here and then just some fog of war, just some fog of war that happens.
0: David, I would agree if it were February 20th today. I have a hard time agreeing. It's April 20th. It did not take this long to do an autopsy. It did not take this long to at least know that something with the official story wasn't right from the official side. And for them to come out and say something, I mean, well, I nobody, don't nobody's saying
2: he died. Nobody's saying he died after mowing his lawn, right? Nobody's saying that this was... Uh, that this was totally unrelated to it. This is a the, a coroner's finding is about, did a person, can we charge someone with murder as a consequence of this, right? And he might have died after shoveling snow or he might have died under other things because he had underlying conditions. But this is, he died he died because of that day. That doesn't mean somebody can be charged for the murder, but he died because of that day, right?
0: I I totally agree with that. That's what I find so frustrating is that we should have known on February 6th or whatever that he died of a stroke. What caused that stroke, we're still looking into and we're going to wait for the coroner's report. That's not what we were told. That's not what was out in the public. Instead, they just kept all of that to themselves and it's April 20th. And that's what breeds distrust. And it's a little hard to blame people for feeling distrustful when it's now April 20th. The guys all have their, like, their thin lips on, you know, or they're like, hmm, we're not weighing into this.
1: No,
2: no, look, I I agree entirely. I I find the whole thing, it just, I'm with you. I find the whole thing really depressing because, like, look, murdering a cop, we can all stipulate it, is a terrible thing, right? The fact, it's sort of like with the, the Chauvin trial, you know, part of the question is whether or not there was a foreseeable, it was a, whether deaths and dismemberment and violence were foreseeable, whether grave deadly forests were foreseeable, whether harm and injury and death were foreseeable. That was, if Sicknick was alive today, January 6th would still be just as evil an event. <laughs> you know, I mean, it would be just as terrible an event. The people responsible for it would deserve the exact same, or maybe maybe some lab can get down to parts per billion you know, and we can remove a little bit of the shame that they should feel fine, but they should all feel the same shame for it. It should still be a black mark in American history. And um, this idea that because he died of natural... I mean, And look, Saurabh is the guy who published this piece by that Matt Schmertz guy at at the New York Post, which made a huge deal about how, yes, it was terrible that Sicknick was murdered by the crowd, this is what we thought at the time, but people should know he was a Trump supporter. And they were trying. He was. He was trying to invest incredible meaning in that. All of this. It, 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 it's the same ghoulishness you get after mass shootings, where there's this weird, gross, quiet, p- quiet before the storm, where you're waiting to find out whether the guy who killed somebody—and it's almost always a guy—whether uh, the guy who killed a bunch of people was on Team Red or Team Blue, and then the second it turns out it was like a pro lifer who was doing it for the unborn, then one side picks up one set of arguments and the other side said, see, this is why you're all murderous bastards. And then if it turns out, no, 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 that, that we're an environmental freak or a, an Islamist fundamentalist. It shouldn't, this, this stuff shouldn't matter at this level. It is, you know, the people responsible deserve the blame. Stop being so ghoulish about it and stop trying to make it sound like the, the, the January 6th thing wasn't so bad just so you can let, I'm sorry to say it, Cheeto Jesus off the hook for yeah. for setting up that thing in the first yeah. place. I mean, and and if, I, if I can just, if I can augment that to say, if you work at a newspaper or you work for a news outlet, why don't you go find out, right? Instead of complaining about the other people who are not doing their jobs up to your satisfaction, go figure it out, bro. Uh, but there's a lot of, Deeply insincere complaining about the mainstream media, where it's like, well the uh, Sora Bamari or Glenn Greenwald. I don't think this is what broke their trust in the mainstream media. I don't think that before this they were like, "I believe everything that I hear on the CBS evening news. this has torn it for me. i I, I am over. So it's just it's so dumb and so pointless.
0: all right. We're going to end on a fast, fast reaction question dogwoods or cherry blossoms Jonah, I'm starting with you. Cherry blossoms. It is known. Chris. Redbud. Ooh, pretty the good name of answer sled? there.
2: Well, it is 420. No. <laughs>
1: redbud. Red, red Bud is where it's at. David Heck, if I know, I can't even picture what either one of them looks like. Right, can we explain <laughs> to like listeners what I feel like that goes back Bud to is? our
0: conversation on masculinity, that that's David's, like, masculine flux. Like, oh, I don't know what trees are. <laughs> Redbugs. Red <laughs> <laughs> I
2: don't, Oaks, don't know nothing <laughs> about <mighty> no trees.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Flowers? No way. Flowers? <laughs> All right. All right. I'm 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 Googling dogwood blooming. Okay. The
2: redbud, Jonah, you see in creeks and hollers, where it's a spindly tree, but it's one of the first to bloom, and uh-huh. it has a it has a ripping, vibrant red color, and it is not as beautiful as the dogwood in uh, on net score, but it arrives early, and it is a garish announcement of spring. It is really beautiful, and it it fills your heart with happy, and it's wonderful to cook meth under. Yes, of course, obviously. (laughs) They look the same. Red devil lie.
0: Oh, David. Oh, David. Uh, I also would have accepted the answer of Jane Magnolias, which bloom even before the red buds uh, and also are like the synthetic magnolia that someone created and named a whole bunch of the different varietals after um, little girl names, which isn't creepy at all. Uh, Thank you so much for listening and for joining us. We will see you again next week with the dudes. And I'm sure we will have plenty to talk about then. If you can rate us, it helps people find our podcast. It helps advertisers know about our podcast. And we would be oh so grateful for your support. And of course, you can always become a member of the Dispatch and hop into the comment section where Jonah answers every single comment. Uh, But you just can't see it when he answers them. It's like a silent response.
2: I yell them into the mirror every morning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, y'all. Talk soon.